Are you a one marshmallow person or a two marshmallow person? That is the question. How many of you still have the marshmallow that you were given when you came in? All right. Excellent. How many of you already ate your marshmallow? Anybody? Oh, Judge. Judge is a one marshmallow person in the back there. But he already knew what was coming. He got, he got the, the download on Friday in the Elder Board meeting. So in 1960, some researchers at Stanford University brought in a group of about four and five-year-old kids, and they set a marshmallow in front of them. They said, hey, here's the deal. We're going to give you one marshmallow, and you can either eat it now, or you can wait, and when I come back, you'll get two marshmallows, just like the video we just saw. And so they left the room for 15 minutes, which for if you have or have been around four-year-olds lately, you know that that is an eternity. And uh, what they found was two-thirds of the kids went ahead and ate the marshmallow. And one-third of the kids waited and got two marshmallows. Twelve years later, they followed up with the same group of kids. And what they found was that the, the two marshmallow kids had performed better in school, and achieved about 210 points higher on their SATs than the one marshmallow kids. They followed up with the same group of kids 40 years later, and what they found is that the two marshmallow people were better adjusted in life, they were more successful in their careers, and reported overall happiness at a higher rate than the one marshmallow people. What we're talking about is delayed gratification, Delayed gratification, and we're going to see this morning that delayed gratification is something that brings about not only happiness and success, but it's the difference between living a balanced and unbalanced life, and it's the difference between living by faith and not living by faith. And we're going to see this from the story of Noah. We're going to be uh, looking at the story of Noah, and the question is this, do I believe what God promises for the future, or do I have to grab in front of me? by what I can see now? That's the question. Because that's the big difference. When we live by faith, we choose not to just grab what's immediately in front of us, but we live by faith, believing the promises that God has for us for the future. And that's what we're going to see with Noah. Uh, Just a reminder before we look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, is that the book of Hebrews was written, written to a group of Christians who were severely persecuted. They had been Jewish, they had been in the Hebrew faith before, they become Christians, and then they get severely persecuted for sharing their faith, for walking with Jesus. And a number of them started toying with the idea of, you know what, it would just be easier if we went back and were Jewish again. If we stopped following Christ, life would be easier. And so the writer of Hebrews writes this letter to encourage them. And in chapter 11, he gives them all the heroes of the Hebrew faith. And he lists them out to show them that they were in the exact same position. That all these heroes had to make a difficult choice and they could choose to either trust God's promises for the future or to stop following God and turn back. And that brings us to the story of Noah who gives us a great example of what it looks like to not only live by faith but to work by faith. And that's where we are today. We, we started, if you remember, we started with Cain and Abel and we saw what with Abel and his example, what it looks like to worship by faith. And then Jared did a great job last week showing us from Enoch what it looks like to walk by faith. And today we're going to look at what it looks like to work by faith from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. We're also going to be in Genesis chapter 6. But verse 7 says this about Noah. It says, By faith, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, He built an ark to deliver his family. 
By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So we see this great example of Noah who is warned by God and he, he builds the ark. This ark is something that, that uh, God tells him that it's going to rain and it had never, as far as we know, it had never rained on the earth before. And so Noah has to put his trust in God. This wasn't a quick process, by the way, building the ark. There was no Home Depot to run to, no Amazon to order all of your supplies and your power tools from. This was a long process. So Noah had to put his faith in God and trust that what God said was going to happen was going to happen and then begin acting on it. He had to do the work, trusting God. As he trusts God, we see that when he believes God, he builds the ark. He saves not only himself, but he saves his family. And in fact, he saves all of humanity and all of mankind. And by faith, he gains God's approval. By working by faith, he gains God's approval. Not because of the work that he did, but because of his faith. Noah lived about 1,600 years after the time of Adam and Eve, after the fall, after they had been created. He's about 1,600 years after them, and this is one of the darkest times in human history. Perhaps the worst time in human history, because the little sin, the little cancer of a sin that started with Adam and Eve when they ate from the tree, we saw with Cain and Abel how it mushroomed into murder and fratricide, and Cain kills his brother Abel. And then over 1,600 years, it becomes an epidemic, and it blossoms into even more violence and bloodshed. And so what we see when we see the story of Noah, a lot of us ask the question, how could God possibly destroy the whole earth? Well, let's look at some verses from Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Uh, six ch- verse 5, it says, When the Lord saw that man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme of his mind, uh, every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time. Nothing but evil all the time. Let's look at verse 11, what it says. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with wickedness. And then the last verse says this. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. So the earth is filled with wickedness. Now, if you know anything about Scripture, you know that when something is repeated, that it's pretty important. And the word that's used there for for wickedness is, is pretty intense. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. It's only gotten worse. And and God looks down on the earth and he is so heartbroken over what he sees, that he understands that if he doesn't do something, that humanity is going to wipe itself out. Humanity is either going to wipe itself out or God is going to have to wipe it out completely. But he looks down and he sees Noah and Noah finds favor in the sight of the Lord. This sin has only continued to increase and it's breaking God's heart. That, that people are walking so far from God. But then we read this in chapter 6, verse 8. It says, Noah, however, found favor in the sight of the Lord. There's one bright spot in all of humanity, and that's Noah. And there's a, scholars believe that there's probably over a billion people already living on the earth at this time. And there's one man who stands out, who's different. It says, Noah, however, found favor in the sight of the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. He was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. 
even the people who don't know the Bible know the story of Noah, right? They paint the, the murals on their kid's wall of Noah and the ark and like, hey kids, let's draw some drowning people over here. You know, I don't understand why they do that. It's not, not really a kid's story if you think about it. But they know the story of Noah. But the Noah of the Bible is not just some little Dr. Doolittle who talks to animals and walks with animals. The Noah of the Bible is a great man of faith. When no one else around him would listen to and believe the word of God, Noah did. It says that Noah walked with God. It says that Noah was righteous and blameless. And one of the things we've got to understand uh, when it says Noah walked with God We have to understand that if we're going to work by faith, that means we have to walk out of step with our culture and in step with God. We have to be willing to walk out of step with our culture and walk in step with God. That's what it means to work by faith. It says that Noah was a righteous man. This means that he conformed to God's standards. It doesn't doesn't mean anything other than when he heard what God's word said, when God would speak to him and he understood what God required of him, that he would conform. He would make his life line up with what God's will was. And then it says that he was blameless. Now this doesn't mean that Noah was sinless. To be blameless simply means that his heart was completely geared toward doing what God wanted him to do. That his heart was bent on doing whatever God called him to do. And so as he stands out from the rest of his generation, we see that he is, he is righteous and he is blameless. He is a bright spot in a very dark world. And then we read that Noah walked with God. There's only two people in all of scripture that are said to have walked with God. Many are said to have walked before God. But there are only two that it's said that they walked with God. One of them we, we looked at last week was Enoch, who walked with God. And the idea is this. The idea is the walk with God is a walk of intimacy. To walk before God means that your life is kind of on display before him, right? It's this idea that your life is a parade and God is a spectator. But to walk with God means that you are arm in arm with him and you are in step with his purposes for your life. You are in step with where he wants you to go. It's a little bit different than just walking before God. And there's only two people in Scripture who are said to have walked with God. And it says that Noah walks with God. And here's the the interesting thing, is that in order for God to speak to Noah and Noah to begin the work on the ark, what we have to realize is that Noah was already doing the work of God before God even called him to build the ark. Noah was already doing the work of God before God even called him to to build the ark. And because Noah is walking with God, doing the things that God has asked him to do by faith, God comes to him and speaks to him. God tells him what the future is. And we read this in verses 12 through 14. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy the earth along with... Uh, destroy them along with the earth. What we have to realize is that the flood was an act of redemption. The flood was an act of redemption. A lot of people wrestle with this. How could God flood the whole earth? But if God hadn't flooded the whole earth, it's very likely that mankind would have just wiped itself out completely because they were so wicked, so evil, so bent on hurting one another that they would have wiped themselves out. And so God looks down 
and he finds one man. And he says, through this one man, I'm going to carry out my plan of redemption that I promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 to send a Savior. And I'm going to carry that promise through one man. And you think about this. If it weren't for Noah, this world would be a lot quieter place. If it weren't for Noah, you and I wouldn't be here. Every single one of us is a descendant of Noah. Because of one man's faith, all of humanity is saved. And so when God comes to him, Noah has a choice. God tells him the future, and Noah has a choice. He can either believe God and prepare and get ready and begin to work by faith, or he can ignore God's word and go on living as he's been living. That's his choice. He can live for the future, or he can live for the present. He can believe in what he sees, remembering it has never rained on the earth up to this point. Yet God tells him it's going to rain, and so he can either believe in what he sees and what he's experienced, or he can believe what God says about the future and begin working and acting by faith, trusting that what God says is going to happen is going to happen. Now, I, I can only imagine what it was like to be Noah, because as soon as he puts his trust, his faith in God, and he believes what God says, his whole life changes. Noah was not a young man when this happened. We know that he was old enough to be married. We know that he already has kids. When he starts building the ark, his kids are already married, and they're helping him build the ark. And then it's about 55 to 75 years that Noah spends building the ark. His whole life changes. You can imagine what it must have been like to be, be Mrs. Noah, right? Sitting around with all her friends at the coffee shop, you know, on the playground, and, and they're like, so when's Noah going to get a real job, Right? Can you imagine being one of Noah's sons and all your friends are saying, so uh, what does your dad do? Uh, he's in construction. Oh, really? What kind of construction? He builds arcs. Is there a big demand for those? Not right now, but dad says they'll be real popular one day. You can imagine being, being Noah and his mom's calling him all the time like, why can't you just be an insurance salesman like your brother? You know, and he's got all these people that are ragging on him. And here's what we've got to understand, that Noah is the only one who is following the Lord. He is the only one who believes God's promise. And this is what it means to walk and to work by faith, is that when we live by faith and we work by faith, we have to understand that we may be the only one. There are going to be times when it seems that we are the only one who are walking by faith, who are working by faith, and yet Noah perseveres. Noah perseveres because he's walking with God. He's walking with him. He's walking out of step with his culture. Noah builds the ark and believes what God says about his future. He's not living in step with his culture. He had to make a huge decision because the easy thing would have been to say, you know what, I'll probably be gone by the time the flood comes and and this isn't really going to impact me. So I don't really care. I'm just going to keep on living the way I'm going to live. If you, if you make decisions based on that, you demonstrate that you don't believe God's promises for the future. Yet Noah demonstrates that he believes God's promise for the future by preparing and by beginning to work and by continuing to walk with God. He walks with him instead of walking in step with culture. It would have been easier to say, you know what, that seems really far off, God. That's, that's like 55 to 75 years off. Um, you know, maybe in 25 years I'll start building this thing, but for now... Uh, we're going to invest our time in, in soccer and, and we're going to invest our time in vacations and we're going to invest our time in, in money and just having fun. We're going to invest our time in, in money and doing what we want to do 
And, and you know what? When, I, when I'm out of high school, then, then you know, I can, I can give my time to God. When my kids are a little bit older, then I can give my time to God. But God says, no, you need to start now preparing. Prepare now. Work now based on the promise that I've given you for the future. For years, Noah looked like a fool. Everyone laughing. Until the day everyone stopped laughing and started treading water. Noah was a two-marshmallow person. He understood that he needed to wait and begin preparing and wait for God's promise in the future. Everyone knew the flood was coming. We know from Genesis 6, chapter 3, that it says, God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever, meaning that there's some indication that God somehow was communicating with man that you need to change your ways, you need to start changing your ways, or else something terrible is going to happen. And we know from Second Peter that tells us that Noah, when he wasn't building the ark, was a preacher of righteousness. You don't think Noah was out there warning people, telling people, come on, you've got to believe. God says this flood is coming. You've got to change your ways. You've got to change your ways. Come on, you've got to stop it. You've got to cut it out. This flood is coming. Change your ways. Noah's preaching righteousness. He's preaching to the people that it's coming, yet no one believes. No one decides to walk with him except for one man, and he saves his whole family, and God declares him righteous by his faith. And here's the deal is that you and I, are in the same position as Noah. You and I are in the same position as Noah because God has already revealed the future. God has already made us promises about the future. And we're faced with the choice. Do we believe God about what he says for the future and begin to live and work and act accordingly? Or do we just keep living the way we want to be living? And in doing so, we demonstrate that we don't believe God's promises for the future. If I believe God, I will act, I will work, and I will prepare for the future based on what his word says. If I don't live, act, and work based on those promises, then I demonstrate that I don't believe what God says is true. That seems harsh. Seems like a very, very convicting statement. But that's the reality. That's the reality. If you don't believe what God's promises say, you're not acting as if that's a reality, then you're not, you're not demonstrating that you truly believe that what God says is true. Faith is making decisions in light of what God says is true for today and in light of what God says is true for the future. So how does believing what God says about today and about our future change our lives? What does this look like practically? This is where the delayed gratification comes in. All right, how many of you have ever said, you know what, tomorrow... I'm going to set my alarm, I'm going to get up early, and I'm going to do my Bible study. And then tomorrow comes, the alarm goes off, (coughs) snooze button. And you wake up hours later and you're like, what is wrong with me? Why don't I want want to spend time with God? Or maybe your friend asks you to help him move. If you've got a pickup truck, this probably happens every weekend, right? Uh, Yes, this is my truck, no, I won't help you move, right? So... Your friend asks you to help you move. You agree to do it early on in the week, and then Saturday comes, and it's a nice, beautiful day. Your friend calls and says, hey, man, let's go fishing. But you've already promised your other friend that you're going to help him move. So you call your other friend, come up with some lame excuse about why you can't help him move. And then hours later, when you get home, you wonder, why am I such a flake? Why can't I just follow through with what I say? 
Why can't I just do what, what I told my friend I was going to do? Or your neighbor comes to you and says, man, there's this girl at work, and I know she's married, and I know I'm married, but man, she is something else. And you say nothing. And later on, you walk back inside, and you're like, why am I such a wimp? Why couldn't I just tell him, don't, don't do it? It's not worth it. You're going to ruin your life. You're going to ruin her life. You're going to ruin your kid's life. Don't do it. Why am I such a wimp? Here's one that we can all relate to. You go to Dos Salsas, and on your way, you say, I'm not going to eat any chips. <laughs> Only to find that by the time your meal comes, you're so full of chips that you don't even want to eat your meal. All right, quick story. So last year, we take my wife's mother out for her birthday. We go to Chewy's, all right? How many, hallelujah for jalapeno, creamy jalapeno sauce, right? So we sit down. We start, they start bringing us chips. It's my, me and my wife, her mom, the kids, her grandmother, her brother and sister. So they're bringing us chips. We've got a big party. This is lots of food. We've already ordered our food, and they keep bringing us chips. And, man, if you've ever seen my kids eat, you know they can, they can go to town on some chips. And so we're just, like, sitting there. We're waiting for our food. We're eating chips. It's a late lunch. Everybody's starving. And the waiter finally comes over after, like, our 10th refill on four baskets of chips at this one table. And he goes, uh, you guys want to slow down on the chips? And I was like, uh, you want a tip? Uh, so I'm like, they're still free, aren't they? Uh, he said, yeah. I was like, then keep, keep coming, you know? So uh, that's my story about chips. But anyway, so I just couldn't believe, like, seriously, your, your, your tip depends on how kind you are to us and bringing us more chips, and you're going to tell me to slow down on the chips. Come on, man. All right, so how many of us make those decisions? Why do we make these foolish, impulsive decisions that we later look back on and we regret? Anybody ever been there? Am I the only one? Please tell me I'm not the only one. Anybody ever walking through a store, right? You're walking through a store, and you're like, I need that right now. I don't care how much it costs. I need that right now. I can't tell you how many times I've done that. And and here's the thing is we are hardwired. We are hardwired to choose immediate pleasure, immediate comfort, and avoid immediate pain, aren't we? We're hardwired to to choose the immediate gratification over delayed gratification. Uh, If I'm honest, most of my sins are not premeditated. And I think this is probably true for most of us. Like, I don't sit around and think, you know what? I need to find some way to be prideful today. You know, it's just one of those things that in the moment something happens. You know what? I I don't sit around and think, you know what? I need to find some way to let my thoughts wander where they don't need to be. It's some impulsive decision that I make that all of a sudden I find myself headed off track. Our ability to overcome sin is our ability to delay gratification because the power of sin is the promise of immediate gratification. It's the promise of immediate pleasure. It's the promise of immediate comfort. It's the promise of the avoidance of immediate pain. Yet walking by faith is deciding to delay gratification, to choose God's promise that if we do, if we obey his commands and we do what he asks us to, that there is a greater reward down the road. And that if we don't obey his commands, that there is a greater, more significant pain later. My wife and I are training for a marathon right now. This afternoon, I have an eight-mile run ahead of me. It's not very long, but eventually those runs are going to get up to 20 miles, 22 miles, right? So 
this afternoon I have a choice. I can sit back on the couch, watch some football, and take a nap. And when my wife tries to change the channel, I can say, hey, I was watching that. She's like, no, you were asleep. Uh, Or I can get out there and I can go put my eight miles in. But I'll tell you what. I may be able to avoid the immediate pain of skipping my my miles today. But come January 14th, I'm going to be in a lot more pain. I'm going to be in a lot more pain if I choose to skip my runs and not do the training and put in the time. We have to choose. Living by faith is believing what God says about the future, about its consequences to my present choices, and acting and working accordingly. Do we act and work according to what God promises? Every choice has a consequence. And here's what we have to understand. Working by faith means choosing delayed gratification. It's choosing short-term discomfort followed by long-term reward over short-term reward followed by long-term discomfort. That's our choice. That's our choice that we have to make. Predicting the future isn't difficult. God's already told us what our future holds. If we follow him, if we obey him, we know that there's reward, both in our immediate future and in our long-term future. If we don't obey him, we know that there's going to be more suffering. I can tell you the times in my life that I've, I've walked with God and I've made the hard choice of, you know what, I, I really want to do this, but I know that if I do, it's not going to honor him, it's not what he wants. And, and for those who are in Christ, we know that there is, no, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but I can tell you there are still consequences. That when we choose to disobey, when we choose to walk away from his path, Man, I look back and I see the the heartache that I caused myself, that I caused my family, and it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Let me give us a a few practical examples. See, Noah believed God in, in the promises of God, and so he builds the ark. When we believe God's promises for the future, we begin to act differently. We begin to act in accordance with his plan. So let me give us a few examples. Proverbs 13, 3. Proverbs 13.3 says this, The one who guards his mouth protects his life. The one who opens his lips invites his own ruin. How many of you know someone who has no filter? They have no on-deck circle, right? They don't take any practice swings before they say anything. It is just, it just comes out. Whatever's in there, it comes out, right? Well, this teaches us, this tells us that if we guard our mouth, we protect our life. And the one who opens his lips invites his own ruin. So if we believe the word of God, if we believe that it's true, then we're going to think through what we say before we say it, right? Another example that we have. Never let loyalty and faithfulness leave you. Tie them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So do we believe that God rewards those who are faithful, that it's better to be faithful, to live up to our promises, to do what we say we're going to do when we say we're going to do it? Or are we flaky? And we just back out of stuff all the time because it's easier right now to back out than to follow through with what I said I was going to do. We have another example here. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent certainly lead to profit, but anyone who is reckless only becomes poor. So do you believe that it pays to plan? Anybody been through Dave Ramsey? How many of us, when we went through Dave Ramsey, man, we did that budget and it started working. We started planning where our money was going to go, and we saw that it worked out. And we know that our life is completely different now than when we just kind of went with the flow, with no planning. Uh, 
my grandfather was in the Navy, and he taught me the six Ps. And I'm going to leave one of them out because, like I said, he was in the Navy. Uh, so we're going to go with five Ps this morning. Proper preparation prevents poor performance, right? And we see that God's Word affirms that. It says, look, if you plan properly, your plans will succeed, will lead to profit, but anyone who is reckless only becomes poor. So do you plan for things in your life, or do you just kind of go with the flow? We have one more in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. It says, remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not out of regret or of, out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful, gi- cheerful giver, and God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. So here's the question. When it comes to your financial giving, do you believe that God can do more with 90% than you can do with 100%? Do you trust God? And let's not even put a percentage on it. Do you pray and ask God, God, how much would you have me give? I'm going to trust that whatever you call me to give, that you're going to supply my needs. I believe your promise for the future that you're going to meet my needs. I may not have all the fancy stuff that I want. I may not get the new shoes, the new purse, the new power tool, but I'm going to trust your, your promise. And here's the thing. Next week is Church Planning Sunday, and we're going to be taking up a special offering. And we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks, but I'm going to ask that, that over the next week, you and your spouse, if you're married, would spend some time praying and asking God, what would you have us give? Now, this giving is not to replace your normal giving here at River Rock Bible Church. This is above and beyond because we still have bills that we have to pay. We still have to make our budget. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to sow into the future. We're trying to sow into a future church plant of men, women, and children who will leave this church and take the gospel to another part of the greater Austin area and reach people who have yet to hear the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. And so we're asking you to sow so that someday others may reap a harvest of souls. Are you willing to pray about that, believing God's promise, believing that if we are faithful and we sow in righteousness, that we will reap in righteousness, that someday God will bring people into his kingdom because of the offering that we took here at River Rock Bible Church next week. I just encourage you to pray about that. Last one, Proverbs 9, 7 through 8. It says, the one who corrects a mocker will bring dishonor on himself, but one who rebukes a wicked man will get hurt verse clearly shows us the difference between the wise person and the foolish person. Nobody likes to be corrected. Nobody likes it when they're corrected, right? The fool, when he's corrected, says, you know what? I I don't like this immediate pain, so I'm going to reject you. I'm going to turn away from you. I may even start to try to hurt you with my words. The wise person, on the other hand, says, you know what? That stings, but thank you. Thank you for saving me from greater pain down the road. By bringing this to my attention and showing me that what I'm doing is wrong, that the way I'm acting is wrong, the way I'm speaking is wrong, thank you for bringing that to my attention so that down the road I can avoid greater pain. When you're corrected, when you read something in Scripture that maybe steps on your toes a little bit, do you reject it and walk away? Do you get hurt? Maybe the pastor says something and you say, oh, you know what, I need to find another church. pastor said something I don't like. Do you avoid the immediate pain or do you look forward to the future reward and embrace 
there's one company out there, they say, embrace the suck, right? Embrace the hard part for today. Embrace the hard thing for today, looking forward to the reward in the future. Walking and working by faith means delayed gratification. Walking and working by faith means that, that we walk with God, not in step with the culture. It's the difference between one marshmallow people and two marshmallow people. Two marshmallow people have learned to wait because they believe in the future of God's promises. If I don't believe in the future, I won't obey God's promises. If I don't believe what God says is true about my future, then I'm not going to obey his promises because I don't believe that there's reward. I don't believe there's consequences. But by faith, when I walk with him, when I obey him, then I demonstrate that I believe. My ability to conquer sin is in my ability to delay gratification. The power of sin is in the promise of immediate pleasure, immediate comfort, and the immediate avoidance of pain. Long term, it costs much more. It costs much more. What price are you willing to pay? Let me ask you this. Where are you susceptible? Where are you susceptible to immediate gratification? Is it in seeking man's approval over God's? Maybe yours is in in greed. You're trying to fill your life with so much stuff now rather than trusting that what Jesus says when he says, don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Are you storing up treasures on earth or treasures on heaven? Do you struggle with lust? Do you struggle with anger? Are there areas of your life where you can identify, you know what, my tendency is towards immediate gratification rather than trusting the promises of God? What he says, if I obey him in this area, there's going to be a much greater reward for me in the future. Do you cling to the promises of God in regard to your actions? Do you obey? Or are you a one marshmallow person? Two marshmallow people are motivated by their future. And Jesus tells us about our eternal future, what's to come long term. We know short term our our promises, the, the things that we do day to day, the lust, the greed, the anger, all those things, we know God has given us promises for that, but let's see what Jesus says about the future in Matthew 24. He says this, Matthew chapter 24. He says, Now concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, except the Father only. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day, of Noah, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. So this is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Jesus tells us that just as it was in the day of Noah, people are going about their everyday innocent activities without a thought, without a care in the world, except for Noah, because he knew what the future was, and so he was working and preparing for that future, trusting the promise of God. Jesus says when he comes back, First time he came to save the world, the second time he's coming to judge the world. When he comes back, it's going to be the same way. My question to you is, you know the future. You know that Jesus is coming back. Are you working and preparing for that future? And here's what that means. Number one, the first step is putting your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is no amount of work, there's no amount of obedience that can save you. Scripture tells us very clearly it's by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ that 
that our eternal salvation is secured. And once we have that, our job is to prepare for his return, to be conformed and transformed into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. And how do we do that? I believe that happens when we walk with other believers who are maybe a little bit more mature than us. We call that process discipleship. That someone walks with us and holds up the mirror and says those difficult things to us and says, you know what, you need to grow in this area. You need to change this area of, the, of your life. And you know what, sometimes that stings. But we need to be the wise person who accepts it and says, yes, I'll make the change. Second, second part of that, once we've put our trust in Christ, is are we preparing other people for the return of Jesus? And that's evangelism. That's being about the business of going to where we live, work, and play and saying, you know what? I know where I'm going when Jesus returns, and I want, to, I want you to have the opportunity to know where you're going for sure. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to tell you about Jesus and to show you through my actions how he has changed my life. Do you believe God's promise for the future? And I'm not just saying, do you intellectually believe God's promise for the future? I, I'm hoping this week you'll take a step back and you'll reflect. What is my life? What does my life say about what I truly believe? Does my life, the way I live, the choices that I make, where I spend my money, what I put on my calendar, what I, what I watch, what I read, does that reflect my belief that Jesus is coming back and that someday I'm going to stand before him? Or am I just a one marshmallow person that's grabbing everything that I can get for now? Are you a one marshmallow person or a two marshmallow person? If we're going to live by faith, if we're going to work by faith, we need to be a two marshmallow person. A great example of this is C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd lived in Victorian England, and he was uh, kind of like the Tim Tebow of his day. He was the great athlete, and he was a strong Christian man. Uh, he was very, very wealthy, very, very popular in England. And at the time, uh, he was at the height of his popularity. And he's walking, and he comes across this flyer that was written by an atheist that says this, Did I firmly believe, as millions say they do, that the knowledge and practice of religion in this lifetime influences destiny in another? Religion would mean everything to me. I, I would cast away all earthly enjoyments and dross as dross, earthly cares as follies, and earthly thoughts and feelings as vanity. Earth, its joys and its griefs would occupy no moment of my thoughts. I would strive to look upon eternity alone and on the immortal souls around me, soon to be either everlastingly happy or everlastingly miserable. I would go forth to the world and preach it in season and out of season, and my text would be, what shall it profit a man if he gain the world and lose his own soul? When C.T. Studd read this, he realized that what the atheist said was true. That if he truly believed that Jesus was coming, that there was a heaven and that there was a hell, it would change the way he lived. And so he gave away all of his fortune and he became one of the first missionaries to India, to China. And in his old age, when other men his age were retiring, he became a mission, the first missionary to the Belgian Congo in Africa. And towards the end of his life, after all of his friends had retired, after everyone he knew was just enjoying the comfort of their retirement years, C.T. Studd sits down to write an article to publish in the British newspapers to, to plead for more missionaries to come to the Congo. And this is what he wrote as a part of that article. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to res run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. 
C.T. Studd was a modern-day Noah. C.T. Studd was a two-marshmallow person. He understood what it meant, and he gave his life based on the promise of God. Are you willing to be a two-marshmallow person? Are you willing to work by faith? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We ask that you would help us to be two marshmallow people, that we would look on the promises that you've given us, the promise, promises of reward for our obedience, the promise of consequence for our sin, and the promise of the return of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we would live and we would act according to those promises, not in, not in line with what we see around us and not in line with just what we see the rest of the world around us doing. Lord, would you help us to live different lives, lives that are marked as ones that are being righteous, blameless, that it would be said of us that that we walked with God, that we walked arm in arm with you and your purposes. Lord, would you give us the resolve that we need to delay gratification and look forward to the greater reward that you have for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.